The views, information, or opinions expressed during the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the individuals involved. Hello, and welcome to Pseudo-Intellectuals, the podcast where we discuss all things relating to politics, philosophy, and law. I am Abraham Litwin-Logan, and today we will be discussing mixed martial arts. Should it be legal? Here with me to discuss this topic, as well as other things, is Malik. How's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for asking. Also here with us is Michael. How are you? Doing good. Thank you. So I think let's get right into the discussion. So as many people know, mixed martial arts, referred to commonly as MMA, is becoming this you know huge behemoth uh, of a sport. It's really uh, growing in popularity. You know, with stars such as Khabib Nurmagomedov and uh, Conor McGregor. So I guess there are some fundamental questions to it, largely resulting to our you know, law-related discussions of the case Crown against Brown. Malik, do you want to go into that a bit? I'd like to go a little bit into that case, but first I'd like to set up the general law. Uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, there is a basic rule which says that you can consent to what otherwise would be an assault or battery, but nothing further than that. And this relates to the principle of autonomy. That is why you can consent to assault and battery. Yeah, let me just jump in. So for our listeners, we're going to briefly touch on the law, but this is, this is not going to be a very legalistic podcast. So if you aren't studying law or don't have an understanding of the law, it's going to be a very basic explanation of it. So don't be turned off by it. I think also important to note is we should define what assault and battery is because I think it's a term that we use a lot very often, but other people might not be a very, like, uh, knowledge yeah, yeah exactly so so when you assault someone you make them believe that there's a threat upon their person and when you batter someone there is some physical assault upon a person uh, there need be no consequence to that so that's just a brief definition of assault and battery and generally you can only consent to that however there are exceptions uh, for uh, certain activities to which you can consent to a higher level of harm example of these uh, exceptions are organized sports horseplay uh, tattoos and well, there, there's an argument to be made that this rule is a bit paternalistic, but more on that later. First, we're gonna be exploring Aaron Brown, which was a case in which uh, the five appellants were engaging in sadomasochist sexual activities, and they consented to the harm which they received from uh, the other participants. And while none of these individuals complained to the authorities uh, in regards to these acts, they were uncovered uh, by an unrelated police investigation. And uh, the, the CPS decided to prosecute these individuals and the case reached the House of Lords and there was a question of whether there should be an exception to the, to the level of harm uh, that one may consent to in relation to sadomasochism. And the question posed was whether it, it was in the public interest for such an exception to be created. The courts eventually decided that it was uh, Parliament's uh, ultimate uh, right to uh, make an exception for sadomasochism. However, within the case, it was argued that perhaps a parliament should only decide what activities should be should be banned and not which ones should have one should create an exception for in relation to the level of harm that is allowed and that's basically the case of Aaron Brown and just a brief outline in regards to the law do you believe that the basic rule is paternalistic um i think so but to be fair i have a, a quite a libertarian view of, of interactions between individuals. So yeah, I think absolutely it is too paternalistic. And I think, I think largely people should be consent to almost, should be able to consent to almost anything. That being s said, the consent must, in my opinion, be 
full, free, and informed. And particularly with that last characteristic, infor informed is where it becomes difficult. Because one could say, oh, does that mean, you know, someone can consent to being, you know, like, I don't know, buried alive, something so horrible. And I, I think taking my position would mean that they would be able to consent. But the problem with that is, can someone like really be informed to such a degree? I, I don't think so. May I just pose a question to you? Uh, do you believe that there are some moral activities that should always be restricted, as in uh, consent should never uh, be sufficient for such an activity to be partaken in? Uh, I recently gave the example of cannibalism in one of our lectures, and I remember that many of our peers felt uncomfortable saying that they would allow a person to consent to cannibalism. And I, I believe that this has to do with uh, a universal sense of, mor of morality, or if not universal, at least broadly universal, because of course there are still some tribes which engage in cannibalism, and maybe in those tribes it is uh, a, a practice that is acceptable. However, I, I personally feel uh, very uncomfortable with cannibalism. And I, As I do I. For the record. I really hope you do too. <laughs> and I would not feel comfortable with someone consenting uh, to being eaten. Well, I think simply based on principle, I think I would be comfortable saying that it would be okay to consent to cannibalism. But let me be very clear when I'm qualifying that. I think it may not be possible for someone to provide an informed consent to cannibalism and therefore consent would be not possible. So that is to say that I think it may not be possible for somebody truly to understand the ramifications of cannibalism. Uh, somebody who's, you know, in a, in a normal mental state, whereby I, I, maybe something like cannibalism wouldn't be would be possible to consent to, but theoretically, if consent was full, free, and informed, I think it would be okay to consent to. You brought up something very interesting up. Uh, you, you just now, you sort of mentioned that, um, that idea of a normal mental state, yeah. right? And if we bring it back to, like, the idea of MMA, it, couldn't you also argue that someone in a normal mental state wouldn't, willingly consent to go into a ring and get beaten up for like five minutes at a time i, I would not agree with that right okay I think uh, i'm just saying that like there's a position in which you can take where the normal mental state something that because i mean when we're talking about something as gray as morality and that idea mm -hmm. like I, I feel like it threats that you you walk that line of being like uh being subject to changing morality and somebody who has a different set of moral views might see the MMA as very reprehen morally reprehensible, I guess. That's actually a great point uh, you, you bring up because MMA has developed a lot since its uh, early origins and it has become considerably more regulated. They actually have uh, a governing body, the International Mixed Martial Arts Federation, and uh, they have rules. I do agree that perhaps in its inception, mixed martial arts was something uh, questionable because uh, there were no strict rules that could protect the individuals involved and hence there would be an argument to be made that no no, no person in the right mind would consent to that sort of, of harm as it was very unpredictable. Uh, but seeing as nowadays there's more regulations, I do believe that a person in their sane, uh, in their sane mind can consent to, to, to mixed martial arts. But uh, do you guys feel that MMA should be an exception to the basic rules, should uh, people be able to consent to MMA? Yes. Yeah, may you elaborate well, a bit upon that? Sure. Um, well, I think I reject the basic rule as a premise. I, I don't think that the law should be based on that, and I don't think mo uh, morally we should base ourselves on that. Like I you know, previously talked about, I don't think uh, you should simply only be able to consent uh, up to an assault or battery. 
um, just because I think that unduly limits personal autonomy. Um, yeah, so I think that's the main reason. So I, I don't think something like MMA should be restricted by the state. Okay. Uh, well, I, I think it's sort of, for me, it's kind of great because I enjoy the sport. I enjoy watching it, but I don't think I would enjoy participating in it. And when you look at uh, injury incidence rates across the board for other other sports that might not be seen as that dangerous, quote unquote, right? Like, it's sort of, it, you, you find a lot of similarities in which people in very high contact sports like American football, for example, like the, the, the injury incidence rate is pretty much the same as MMA or if not worse for professional players. So it's that, it's that idea that people have been and always have been consenting to getting injured or doing something for the sake of sport. But I think the reason why so many people have a problem with the MMA is because it's, it's a full combat sport and it's, when you watch it, it's very, it's very hard to, to not see that. But I mean, with American football, the end goal is different, right? I'm not trying to kill somebody. Like, I'm just trying to get the ball to the end of the, like, into the end zone. So there's a difference in the goals there. But in MMA, it's just, I'm just trying to kill you. Like, I mean, not kill, let's just say it. Yeah, I, I, don't think, I don't think the athletes are usually trying to kill the opponent. It's usually to knock them out or to submit them, but, just to be clear. But there's some, some value in what Michael is saying, because there have been a lot of deaths related to MMA. Some examples are Sam Vasquez, Michael Kirkham, Tyrone Mings, Buto Gulane, Dunshay White, Rondell Clark, Matheus Fernandes. These are some examples of deaths in, related to MMA. So I do think there is uh, an argument to be made that MMA can be problematic and that it, if, it's, if it is to be an exception to the basic rule, then it, it, it has to be more regulated or uh, at least um, have stricter rules in regards to what can be done and what cannot be done. What years does that sort of between? From 2007 until uh, present day. Last, oh, Matheus Fernandes died day. in 20, 2020, if I'm right. mistaken. I, I, think the, I think in the US, some of the states, uh, the statistic that I saw was there was the big ones, there were seven deaths from MMA in the states, and uh, all those were before 2009, something like that. Because they recently uh, updated the... Um, the rules, so it's like, I can't remember exactly what the term is, but they updated the rules, so now in terms of like healthcare, health and safety, because the MMA merged with two other companies, or they were, they uh, brought two other companies into the fold to sort of revamp their healthcare standards. So like, it's a lot, well, like safe, quote unquote, safer now, I guess, for well, the athletes. Let me ask a more fundamental question, maybe. Let's assume the premise even though I'm not sure that, uh, I'm not sure if we know if it's true. Let's assume that MMA is the most dangerous, you know, popular sport, right? Let's assume that to be true. And we can talk about if that's true afterwards, but let's assume that to be true. Does that in itself mean that we should ban MMA? Well, I do think that there's always going to be a most dangerous sport, right? Because that is a title that uh, will we'll, we'll get uh, taken by some sport or another. So I don't think that simply because it is the most dangerous sport, it should be banned, but that there should be a standard upon which it, it, it should be measured. If MMA is causing considerable deaths and uh, the value it provides to society, in other words, entertainment, is not valued as much as the safety of the participants, 
then perhaps there's an argument to be made that it should be banned. And simply because it is the most dangerous sport does not mean that it should be banned, but we should look at other uh, standards and at uh, the level of dangerousness itself to, to make that evaluation. Well, but I mean, if we go back to Abraham's libertarian view, right, shouldn't, it, no matter the amount of danger that the athletes are exposed to, as long as they hit the three requirements of their, their consent being free, in, and informed, informed. Full, full and informed, right, then wouldn't it stand the reason that we should allow it to happen as long as they know the consequences of what they're going to enter into? Well, you have to look at the, at the social economical uh, background of these fighters. Many of them come from lower classes and thus there's an argument to be made that they are coerced economically to participate in MMA fights because it is seen as a solution to their e economical problems and uh, that it, it's, it's, it's the path that they are pressured to carry on from an early age. So uh, perhaps that this is, this is a, a rebuttal to, to your argument. Well, I, I do agree that it, it is a bit shaky. Right, but yeah, as in, in, I, I'm sure you understand the problems in saying that because then by that logic, all consent for anything that anybody from a lower socioeconomic background comes from would be not full, free and informed because having that, coming from that kind of background would affect not just your, whether, you, whether or not you join the MMA, but everything that you, every choice you make in life. So I think that's not really the argument that we would want to go down. I agree. Perhaps a better one is in relation to morality then, because uh, I feel that at least among us, I saw that there is a uh, consensus that cannibalism should not be consented to. Well, uh, Abraham had a had a, a distinct view, but uh, it, we need to analyze if the the moral benefits of MMA. Again, I, I believe it's entertainment. Perhaps uh, the individuals themselves want to attain some sort of glory. So maybe that's why they participate as well, whether that outweighs uh, the detriment to the individuals themselves. And you talked about consent, uh, making it so that it does not matter uh, the level of dangerousness that is involved. But again, I do believe that we have to consider the morality of the action itself and not only consent, because uh, consent is not the only thing that matters. One might argue that my view is a bit paternalistic, and I, uh, I agree, perhaps it is, but uh, some paternalism is necessary uh, so that we can avoid situations that are uh, undesirable. Um. Perhaps, but okay. So let, let's just, let's talk about morality in relation to it. Um, Malik, based on your moral principles, why or why not would you um, s support the banning of MMA? I would personally not support the banning of MMA because, as I see it, you have to look at these individuals as autonomous beings. And uh, if they're able to exercise their autonomy, they must be allowed to make choices in relation to how they uh, choose to live their lives. And part of those choices is to consent to a higher level of harms. So by denying uh, autonomy to these individuals, you're taking away their liberties and their freedoms. And as I said, uh, this is justifiable in certain situations due to the fact that there might be a common uh, morality against it. As I said, cannibalism would be the, uh, my, my prime example. However, usually individuals should be free to uh, behave as they will because they are autonomous beings and should be respected as such. Interesting. But um, when you say morality, are you talking about what you conceive to be societal, society's conception of morality, or are you talking about your individual view of morality? Well, I think it'd be problematic to impose my own view of morality upon others. So I'm talking about society's view. I do agree that, for example, the United Kingdom as a multicultural society does not have a single strain of, uh, of morality. Rather, there are many different uh, strains that are interwined. 
However, I do believe that there are some uh, common ground between these different types of morality and that that is how we should evaluate whether an action uh, should be a there should be intervention by a state in relation to an action or there shouldn't be. I just like to briefly mention now the view of Nicholas uh, Dixon. He takes a Kantian view of ethics and he argues uh, MMA should never be justifiable because uh, according to Kant, rational beings can never be treated merely as means uh, to an end, but rather should be treated as the ends themselves. Hence, uh, an MMA fighter's opponent must be treated with dignity and not be seen as a means of securing money, glory, or whatever may be the end goal of the individual in question. How do you guys feel about Dixon's view? Um, well, I personally have a problem with Kantian ethics uh, generally, and the, my problem with it is rooted in its pure dismay of consequentialism. So what I mean by that is Kantian ethics only looks at the act itself, it doesn't consider the end, um, and that becomes problematic. Or as um, I believe it's Sarah Kelly who puts it, who's a, I think a professor at OSU, she cites the example of if we rely on a Kantian ethics um, view of morality can result in problematic hype, uh, outcomes. Take for example, if person A has, um, let's say they have a deontological duty grounded in Kantian ethics to, um, I don't know, not to torture people, right? But if person A does not torture somebody, it will result without a doubt in the death of 50 people, let's say. Kantian ethics would say A cannot torture um, the, that person, person B, and as a result, we're going to have 50 people who die. That seems really problematic to me. So I think um, using Kantian ethics as a moral justification either for supporting MMA or not supporting MMA seems to be problematic to me due to its lack of consideration for consequence. Right. I, I think I agree with that as well, because I mean, I can bring up a probably a simpler example of lying to a Nazi officer, right? Say, for example, we're in that era now and I have a couple of uh, Jewish people hiding in my basement, right? And if a Nazi officer comes over, I am technically according to Kantian ethics. I cannot lie because lying in and of itself is a bad thing. Right? Great example. Yes. So that's sort of that idea. And I don't think that's something that would sit well with most people. So I think it's difficult to see. I think it's more important that we evaluate the entire thing as a whole to look at it on a more broader base. Uh, I agree with both of your perspectives. So it seems that uh, Dixon's view is problematic. However, I'd like to talk to you guys about the basic rule again and whether there is uh, an analogy between boxing, which is accepted as the sport that falls within the exceptions, and MMA, since they are arguably analogous sports. Would you uh, agree that there's an argument to be made that MMA should be an exception as well to the basic rule due to its similarity to boxing? Okay, so I think uh, just on the face of it, right, if we look at it, MMA looks a lot more vicious than boxing because boxing is seen as like a gentleman's sport. You know, I hit you, 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 when you hit the ground, I'm not allowed to just like dog pile on you and just like hit you again, right? I have to wait for you to stand up, there's a count, so on and so forth. But as I mentioned before about inju injury incidence rate, it's very interesting because uh, there are a study published by the Ca Canadian Academy of Sport Medicine in yeah, 2009. Yeah, great study. Yes, best study, right? It shows that the injury incidence rate for professional boxing is 250 per 
1,000 athlete exposures. And athlete exposures being uh, every time an athlete enters a ring, uh, so uh, uh, across 1,000, it would be 250. And the injury incidence rate for MMA currently stands at about 229. So it's lower than professional boxing, right? So why, why is it that MMA is seen as this horribly vicious sport when technically when you look at it, the injury incidence rate is about like 5% less, I would say. I'd also like to emphasize that perhaps the most serious injury are brain injuries. While MMA might uh, offer more injuries that are visual, for example, uh, blood and uh, cuts or broken noses or broken bones, these are arguably injuries that are not significant because you can easily recover from these injuries. And we must focus on uh, brain trauma and these significant uh, injuries in, in themselves. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And Dr. Shelby Cartman from the University of Alberta in Canada as well um, conducted a large comparative scientific study on this uh, topic, specifically dealing with significant injuries, um, comparing MMA and boxing. And she found um, in her comparison that while MMA fighters are more likely to sustain injuries in general, these injuries were more likely to be minor, so things like bruising and small cuts. Unlike in boxing, whereby professional boxers were a lot more likely to suffer severe injuries relating to loss of consciousness and, you know, um, boxers being almost twice as likely to sustain a concussion that involved the loss of consciousness. So it seems that in terms of more significant brain-related injuries, you're more likely to be injured to that degree um, as a boxer than an MMA fighter, which sort of begs the question as to why is there this, you know, um, I guess popular conception that MMA is so much more violent than boxing. And I think there's two reasons that may be driving this. First, um, boxing seems to have more of, I guess, a, a history whereby it's always been accepted. And MMA is, I guess, having a resurgence now when in the past it's been sort of accepted, sort of not, but it's never been so popular. And then I, I think the second reason is that when you watch an MMA match, you're probably going to see a lot more blood in, in boxing uh, than in boxing. And um, although this blood may be resulting from, you know, light cuts that are of lesser significance, it still as a viewer may repulse um, certain people. And I think also, I guess tying into that, is the impression many people have is, oh, you know, these boxers have these, you know, big puffy gloves on, and when they, you know, punch people, it lessens the impact, and then, you know, they're not hurt as, hurt as badly. Okay, so that's very interesting points from the both of you, and I would just like to bring up this, uh, this stat that I found, right? So essentially, like you said, MMA looks a lot more vicious because of the injuries that they sustain, and that is very true. 66% of injuries sustained in MMA fights are facial, facial lacerations, right? And this is a very important point. It's lacerations. So because of the size of the gloves, right, they're smaller, they're less padded, it's easier for you to get cut when you get hit, right? And But a very big issue that uh, was from this article in the New York Times by Dr. Charles Burnick, he asked, he, 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 argued, he posits that the injuries that we should be looking at aren't necessarily the ones that look the worst, but it's more of the continual, small, or, well, relatively insignificant hits to your head 
rattles your rattles your brain and it sort of damages it it's been proven to damage the hippocampus and thalamus of brains and fighter with more than six years in the ring and it goes and it gets worse from there so we see that a lot of the times even if boxers are knocked up, knocked out or knocked down the fact that they sustain so many minor hits to the face means that they, there are a lot of long-term effects of having that, so that might also be a very big issue. And also it's interesting, and very few people know this, but um, when you compare uh, traditional boxing to bare-knuckle boxing, it's actually safer to be in a bare-knuckle boxing match in terms of significant consequences. Oh, really? The reason um, largely being is that people's hands aren't that strong, people's wrists aren't that strong. So when you don't have the support of a glove and you're punching somebody, you can only punch so hard, whereby you can punch a lot more with, you know, a big heavy glove, which can result in, you know, brain damage like Michael was talking about. Although with bare knuckle boxing, I've, I've watched it a little bit, but it, it's like even a lot more bloody than MMA. And it's personally for me hard to watch. Yeah. yeah. I'd just like to ask you guys in relation to the uh, the French experience because France recently uh, banned MMA in 2016, but they recently reversed that decision. Yeah. Uh, well, right now uh, France is in the process of legalizing MMA. They've set up a, an organization to uh, complete all the legal uh, process, and I'd like to ask you guys what you think in relation to this decision by the French. Why do you think they banned it, and why have they changed their mind? Well, for my understanding. There was um, a death of an Irish fire fighter in 2016, and it was very uh, heavily publicized. I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was because it seemed like the fighter was unconscious and the referee like wasn't paying attention or something, and he didn't stop the fight when he should have, and it resulted in the Irish fighter's death. And this you know, really shocked a lot of people. And I think as a consequence of this, this led to France. Um, I guess passing legislation that banned mixed martial arts in, in France. But as Malik, you know, just mentioned, yeah, they're introducing it. So I, I think it's good they're reintroducing it because I think it should be legal. Um, I understand why they would ban it in the first place. It seems to me largely, you know, I guess emotive response, which is fine, but I, I like I think it's makes more sense for it to be legal than not. Um uh, yeah, I think going back to the idea of uh, head injuries and if we, we if, if we operate on the assumption that the MMA is dangerous because of the head injuries that um, the fighters receive and the long-term effects of that, then two things come out immediately, right? Like, there are two very big standout points. Is that first, boxing has a higher incidence, in injury incidence rate. We've been through all of that. It should be banned as well. So if you can, if you disagree with the premise of MMA being legal, then boxing should also be equally uh, illegal. And also, if we take that argument one step further, all dangerous sports should be banned. That American football should be one of the first ones to go because 99% of ex-pro football players have CTE, which is chronic traumatic, and I'm going to butcher this word because I'm not a medical student, encephalopathy. Okay. What, what does that mean? Uh, it's essentially, um, it's, uh, it's like over the course of a lot of minor hits, you get brain damage and then it leads to behavioral and mood problems as well as problems with rational thinking. And then it often leads to like dementia in older, in your older age. So we see that ex-pro football players have like this horrible life after retirement that's facing them, even though 
they have those glory years in the spotlight and the amount of money they make. And also another interesting stat is that of 1.5 million football players, okay, I'm going to say football, but American football, right? <laughs> uh, of 1.5 million football players annually, we see 1.2 million injuries and players are seven times more likely to be injured in game than during training, right? Whereas training injuries in MMA are four times more likely than uh, injuries in during a match. So as in, when we talk about injuries in MMA, we're talking about like injuries that you would, wouldn't normally sustain in a match. So say for example, broken arms, you know, broken nose, stuff like that, right? So it's easier, to, for me at least, it's easier for me to sort of see that, to accept the point that it will be simpler for us to regulate training sessions. So if I'm getting more injured in training, during training sessions, it's easier for me to mitigate that. But whereas if you're in a game, that might be a little bit harder. And also another point very quickly before we move on is that you have to also acknowledge that a lot of the people who are doing MMA who have uh, under this statistic are recreational fighters who just go there for the sport and don't actually want to fight. So the professionals aren't seeing that much of uh, great disparity in the level of harm that they receive. But realistically, how would we go about legislating, you know, practice? I don't know how realistic that would be. No, as in, I'm, I'm not talking about it in terms of like a, a, a legislation issue. I'm talking about in terms of just like a personal coach to train, trainee issue. So say, for example, if we're, I'm an MMA coach and you're mm-hmm. my trainee and you constantly get injured during practice, then there's something wrong with the practice sessions that we are holding and the way we structure them and yeah. what we're actually doing in the practice. So I think the onus then becomes on the fighter to then mitigate that risk. Yeah, sure. I think I can agree with that. But, you know, um, how can we, like, realistically try and pursue something? Because it, it doesn't seem... Has this been going down over time? I don't know if it has been. Well, I think it'd be in the interest of the coach and the fighter themselves to reduce the number of injuries uh, that are occurring, right? So but why isn't this happening Well, then? perhaps they don't have the knowledge, right? And mm-hmm. maybe... Uh, well, we do have a regulatory body. If they would send coaches to have uh, training sessions in which uh, what are the safest methods of training their athletes, that would mm-hmm. be something positive. I know in Brazil, uh, football coaches and football, uh, proper football. Uh, <laughs> okay, and we're going there. So American football. Yes. Oh, oh, no. The real football. Uh, okay. Well, they have training sessions at the CBF, which is the Brazilian Confederation for Football. Uh, and something similar could be instituted for uh, MMA in, in, uh, in, in all countries. So if you're an um, MMA coach and you're listening to this podcast... Uh, make sure you're checking with your athlete that you're training and making sure that they're not suffering detrimental injuries. <laughs> if you have any questions, you can DM us on Instagram. <laughs> okay, I think um, going back to that, like what I mentioned before and uh, to address your point you made, Abraham, it's um, the idea that, so one, recreational fight, uh, MMA is gathering a lot of attention. So what happens when a sport gathers attention is more people sign up and go and try it out, right? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the big reasons why injuries are such a big thing is because of the grappling aspect of MMA and also the sparring aspect of MMA. Because if you are a newcomer into the sport, you don't know how to check your punches. You know, you're not sure how to, you're not, you don't know how to throw a punch unless it's full force. So then you might, it might, and similarly, you can only ever spar with somebody who's your level because it would be unfair otherwise the person who's, who you are sparring with is less likely to be able to avoid a punch that's coming at full force. So you see, you do see injuries that happen in that manner. And also, uh, another, another aspect is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? And when you're put in a lock or you're put in a hole, 
and you it's very it's a very technical sport so when you try to break a hold and you try to break it with too much force or in the wrong in the wrong way you might end up hurting yourself and if the person that you are again similarly the person that you are grappling with doesn't understand the nuances of the sport itself then they might not know when to let go so you see that um the the stat that you're four times more likely to be injured during practice as opposed to injured in a, in an actual match sort of isn't necessarily um, just for pro fighters but it's across the board so I think it's safer to say that pro fighters are less likely to be injured than recreational fighters right. which is why there's that disparity in the statistics right. as opposed to the football statistic where players are seven times more likely to be injured in game than during training which means that the people who you see on TV who are playing NCAA you know um the NFL. NFL, right? Sorry, slip my mind. I will say NBA. <laughs> like the NFL, right? They are seven times more likely to be injured. So you see that the people at the very apex of the sport are unable to mitigate that risk of playing that sport. So I think it's something that if that is the case, then the sport just gets more dangerous as it goes on. The, the more you play, the worse it gets. Whereas if you see in the MMA, it's arguable that the better you are at it, the easier it is for you to mitigate that risk. So I think it's fair to say that MMA is not as dangerous as many people think it is and that there are sports uh, which are regulated and which all allowed by law that are will have greater dangers not only to athletes but also to uh, people that are new to the sport. So uh, is there a reason why MMA should not be legal in countries? I don't think there's a good reason. I'm sure you can come up with many reasons. But I haven't heard anything that's in any way compelling. I mean, I think it's really difficult to um, decide the merits of the legality of a sport based on what one conceives to be societal interest because that's something so inherently subjective. And um, even if that's the case, I think it's a departure from the embracing of individual autonomies, which is problematic. So I don't think that's really convincing. So I, I mean, I don't think there's a good argument really. What I do think is problematic is that most countries in the world don't have MMA as legal or, or illegal. It's simply not regulated at all. Mm -hmm. And I do think that is a problem because if MMA fights are going to happen in those countries, I do believe that there must be a structure uh, that must be followed. Uh, not only rules for the participants, but also a body that can uh, ensure that those rules are followed through and that minimum requirements of safety are adhered to. And I believe there's an argument to be made in, in relation to increasing the regulation in uh, countries where the regulation already exists and implementing regulation in countries where uh, such regulation does not exist at all. I think also an important point to note is that the Federation, um, there's a statistic that says that uh, the biggest reason why MMA fighters are injured is because when they get knocked out, right? Mm -hmm. and the dog pile happens like I see you falter and I go in for like I, I go in for like the knockout MMA fighters are usually hit 2.7 times after like 2.7 times after they've been knocked out so that's where it becomes dangerous is because you want to minimize that as quick as possible so that the, the regulation can come in the form of refereeing right the referee has to step in the moment that they come in but then the issue comes in where they might call a fight a little bit too early and that might be make it unfair so i'm not really sure what you guys think about that but i believe that there is some there's a gap that can be filled in that area yeah i think theoretically that sounds good but uh, the result of that is referees stopping fights true too early so there was um a fight recently stopped um ufc fight night fight night 169 i think who was it 
Um, it was two lesser-known fighters, Ankalev and Kutaleva, something like that. Right. And anyways, um, I watched the replay of this fight, and they're both standing, and one of the fighters is doing what's called a rope-a-dope, right. um, so, which sort of can see, uh, appear to somebody as um, them you know, losing control o- o- of themselves, but it's a strategy. And the fighter was doing this, and then all of a sudden the referee stopped the fight. And the guy was totally, you know, fine. He was punched, but it wasn't like, you know, a knockout a punch strike. or anything. And, like, because of that, this person, you know, lost huge financial, you know, um, rewards. And, you know, he had trained for months and just for the fight to be ended. So I think practically it's really, really difficult for refereeing to be reformed. Um, so I, I don't know how much we can really do about that. But I, I think... T- um, embracing an international body is, you know, a, a really important step in the right direction. I just, I just wanted to comment that I do not see that the decision was so problematic because erring in the side of caution should be preferred over erring in the side of, uh, well, ensuring the spectators receive a better uh, performance, right? Because we are talking about the health of these individuals. So it is true that there were financial setbacks for the fighter, but uh, I'm sure that were you to ask him, if you would rather have uh, been beaten to pulp and suffered uh, brain trauma or uh, lose some financial incentives, I, I don't think that's a fair comparison. Well, I think I think it's, a, it's we're arguing on extremes here because yeah. like you know, it's an if he's pulling a legitimate strategy and he's not injured at all, and, it doesn't he, make and sense. he was really upset when the fight was stopped. Right, right. As I in, because I mean, of course, it, I think also the baseline is that we have to understand that anybody who steps in the ring believes that they're going to win. So whatever strategy they do, if you call the fight too early, then they they just feel like they've been robbed, right, of whatever that was rightfully theirs, whatever they deserved and they trained for. So I think that's very important to note that, like, it's kind of, you can't really argue that, like, it's it's either you stop the fight too early or you get beaten to a pulp. You just try to reduce the amount of times to get hit. Because there are times, like, very clearly when you've seen those, like, you know, guy throws, like, a spinning back fist and then he's knocked out, the referee doesn't do anything and then lets him, like, wail on him, like, another four times before yeah, stepping in. Yeah. I think that's where the issue comes in, right? It's, like, when it's clearly the guy is out like a light. Mm-hmm. He's He falls over and it's you know it's over and the referee waits, like, that three seconds before the guy goes in. And... I think also maybe that you could institute like a probably like a one second rule after they hit the ground. I think sort of like you sort of wait for a second and then you check it and and then you go in. Because I don't really see much of a difference between that that delay of a second. Because if they're out, they're out, and if they're not, you know, you still have the advantage. So I don't think you'd be giving up a lot in that situation. I just like to remind both of you that there are deaths associated to MMA. So perhaps while you may feel that the example I gave is slightly unrealistic, mm. and perhaps it is in the scope of all the fights that have occurred in uh, the right. years I mentioned, erring in the side of caution is preferable to is preferable to the alternative. Right. Of course. Yes, perhaps. So I think I think um, let's leave things there. I think we're on a you know pretty amicable um, spot whereby I think we all agree that MMA should be legal. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Numbers don't lie. Yeah, I guess so. So I think we're safe to leave things there. Um, thank you, Michael. Thank you. And thank you, Malik. Thanks, Abraham. A couple notes before we go. If you're a fan of the show or just enjoyed today's episode, leave us a rating or review in the podcast store or tell a friend about us. To stay up to date, make sure to subscribe to our show. You can reach out to us on Twitter at pseudointpod.com. 
follow us on Instagram at pseudointellectualspod or like our page on Facebook at pseudointellectualspod. Thank you for listening, and you'll hear from us again soon.